0: All right. Well, we are continuing in our series in Philippians, and we're starting Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And we're going to look at this passage slightly differently today because the structure of what is written here is actually quite unique to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you find lots of poetry, you find lots of song, Uh, You find lots of measured verses in the Old Testament writings in various books, obviously, especially the poetry of, of like, Psalms or Proverbs, but it's it's all through the Old Testament. But the New Testament is written almost exclusively in prose and uh, just regular sentences that you would find in a normal letter or book. But the beginning of Philippians chapter 2 seems a little different. The, The second part of this text has long been called the Christ hymn, and for myself, I like to call the first part now Paul's poem. So you have Paul's poem and the Christ hymn, and they sort of link together as a section of poetry in which the sentence structures of the text itself builds up and elevates the emphasis of what the words say. In other words, the sentence structure and the poetic way in which it's written give these words sort of a special emotional force. And it serves to draw our attention to these words, not just as emotionally forceful, but as especially important to what Paul has to say in this letter. It kind of bolds and underlines what verses 1 to 11 have to say. Um, For instance, if I am telling you about how much I love Wendy and I was to suddenly break into song or, you know, start spitting some sweet rhymes, um, don't worry, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but you would know, right, you would know that obviously whatever I was saying about my love for Wendy was specially important because it causes me to sing, it causes me to speak poetically. That, that, that at that point you've entered sort of into fresh territory of passion and emotional force and importance. And, and I say that because what Paul has to say here in these 11 verses is obviously important, and it, and it carries with it profound emotional force. As we saw last week, Paul's chiefly concerned that his Christian friends in the Philippian church are able to stand firm against opposition, and that they are able to strive together in unity. You remember, linked arm in arm together, and especially not be terrified or frightened by any threat or action that their opponents might bring against them as they contend in the culture. And he he showed them what standing firm looked like and where their hope is. And and now, as he opens up chapter 2, Paul's going to elaborate with greater force how the Philippian church, how all churches, how all Christians for all of history are going to be able to stand firm. There's one way that that is possible, and that's what Paul wants them to understand in these verses, how that standing firm Takes place. And what's been briefly expressed in the phrase last week, in one spirit with one mind, is now expanded to have a paragraph of its own. The wrong thing in my text, sorry. It's now expanded to have a paragraph of its own. It's, it's overflowing with emotional force, and it's beating with a particular rhythm of parallel lines and words, and then underpinned with a hymn of exaltation to Christ. And so we're going to start with reading a good translation of Paul's poem and the Christ hymn, and then, as I said, we're going to unpack them a little differently in a different format than usual so that we can feel in the structure of the text what the power of what Paul means to express. And we should feel the weight of these words as we meditate on them this morning, especially as we go into communion together. So let me just pray as we open God's word. Father God, as we come to read these verses, this text that Paul has written to the Philippian church, we know that it has been written by your Holy Spirit. And we know it applies to more than the Philippians, it applies to us. And so, Father, help us to recognize how very practically we as a church are intended to stand firm and how we will have unity and how we will be able to face the winds of opposition and to be able to stand firm on the gospel together. And then secondly, Lord, where that source of standing firm comes from, where that unity comes from. And it comes from Christ Himself, and that's what Paul would have us see this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Paul writes this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Well, we'll start with Paul's poem and the practical implications of it and what it has for Christian behavior and our posture towards each other and our posture towards the world. And then before we start the Christ hymn, we're actually going to begin communion kind of partway through this message so that this special text, the Christ hymn, falls on us on this day of communion in a special way. And I think it will be... be important that we will have begun communion so that we can be holding the elements in our hands as we meditate on the Christ hymn at that time. But first of all, Paul's poem, and, and what I've done here is I've, I've sort of roughly transliterated the Greek so that we can see the stanzas and the rhythm of what Paul has written. So it reads this way, if any encouragement in Christ If any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. That you may be of the same mind, having the same love, joined in one accord and of one understanding. Oh, didn't mean to do that. Didn't mean to do that. Sorry. Nothing done in selfishness of conceit, humbly regarding one another more important, not looking out for your own things, but also those of others. Now you can see here the the stanzas, you can see the pacing, you can see the parallelism of the Phrasing. If there's any encouragement in Christ, that you may be of the same mind, that nothing is done in selfishness, conceit. Or if there is any comfort from love, have the same love, humbly regarding one another, more important. If there's any participation in the Spirit, be joined in one accord, not looking out for your own things. If there's any affection and sympathy, and if there's one understanding, look out for the interests of others. You see, Paul is repeating here phrases that have to do with how we will stand firm together. This Philippian church, he's just said, be steadfast, be faithful, strive together in unity. And he says, this is how you're going to do it. All of these verses are actually one sentence. And the main clause of that giant sentence that we just read with its parallel structures and with its repeating themes, has one clause at the center. The main clause of this center, of this poem, is complete my joy. And and Paul structured everything around that clause to elaborate on what will accomplish that imperative that he's given the Philippian church. This is what I want you to do, Philippian church. I want you to make my joy complete. Now, he's already said that the Philippian church is a source of profound joy and thankfulness to him in chapter 1. So Paul is not saying, you know, Philippians, I don't get any joy from you. Stop being a pain in the backside. No, no Paul is saying, complete my joy. You are a great joy. The joy you give me is almost perfect. There's almost no complaint at all against it. You are so close to complete joy. Just, just complete it. Make it final. Final. Of course, Paul isn't being selfish here. We know that what will complete Paul's joy is the same thing that is healthiest and best for the Philippians themselves. Paul's joy will be complete when their discipleship in Christ is complete. Paul's joy will be complete when their joy in Christ is complete. And that's why this opening stanza leading into this clause says that if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy... Paul's saying, if I, could, if I could stress or emphasize anything from Jesus, if you appreciate my love, if you participate with me as receivers of the Spirit, if you have any affection or compassion for me, then please, Christians, make my joy complete. I, like, if there's a glimmer of any of this in who you are and what you are, then this is what would make me happy. Complete my joy and complete it this way, in unity, humility, humility, in otherness, there's very little reproach or correction in the letter to the Philippians, but it's not entirely absent. What we pick up from Paul's theme, even in chapter one, is that the Philippian church does have some struggles. They are faithful mission supporters, they are well established in the gospel, they are actively engaged in the battle, and they want to do better in the battle against the opposition and suffering and persecution. They're facing opposition. But it seems like, if you read between the lines, they're getting a little worn down. They're getting a little scared. And that fear and that wearing down is causing disunity. And that can happen in any church. You're in the battle. You're in the fight. And you get worn out, and you get tired, and you get a little bit fearful of the stuff that is going on, and then the disunity starts. We should be doing it this way. We should be doing it that way. Did you see what that guy said? What are the elders thinking? Why did they propose that? What's Paul talking about? And you get these little aspects of disunity that you start figuring out is going on, and that's why Paul is encouraging them to stand firm, and encouraging them not to be afraid, and encouraging them to be of one mind. In chapter 3, Paul addresses the false teaching of the Judaizers, and then in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul addresses a very specific intru- instance of this disunity when he calls out the two women, Evodia and, and Syntyche, and, uh, and, and he entreats them to be together in agreement with one another. And so, so there's a subtext to Philippians, even though he doesn't rebuke them outright like he does some other churches. The cracks are beginning to appear in this faithful Philippian church. And Paul knows what this church needs to hear is how to stand firm, how to have unity, how to be together in the fight and not fighting each other. And so, knowing that, we see a flow of logic from chapter 1. And the flow of logic goes this way The opposition you are experiencing calls for standing firm together. How do you stand firm? Unity. How do you achieve unity? Humility. What does humility look like? Otherness. And who makes this supernaturally possible? Jesus. And that's the flow of logic that these two poems address, that Paul's kind of passionate, rhythmic, you know, stanzas of repeating, emphasizing, encouragement and exhortation are pointing towards. Unity, humility, otherness in Jesus. Now, how are you going to stand firm together? His first imperative, he says that you may be of the same mind, having the same love, joined in one accord and of one understanding. You're only going to stand firm together if you Think the same, if you love the same, if you have the same purpose, and, and carefully understand one another. And Paul uses phroneo here instead of psyche for the word mind, which, which isn't like our intellectual mind. That's not what he's talking about. The word phroneo literally means our careful regard. In other words, that we are approaching things with the same regard, with the same understanding. We have, we have the same regard for what is going on around us, and the same regard for each other would be a good translation. And this is something that every church has to work on. This is an imperative. Unity is a command. Disunity is not an option. Just letting people be contentious or stir up dissension is not an option for a church. It would be disobedient of a pastor or an elder or a ministry team leader or any faithful Christian in a church to simply allow conflict and argumentative views of discipleship or the Christian life to fester or spread around a church. We we can't allow disunity fester. So when we here at Lakeside, stress the importance of the Scripture as the plumb line, as the foundation and the guide to all truth, that turns Scripture into a source of unity because Scripture becomes the foundation on which we all agree. For instance, when we stress the centrality of Jesus and the gospel in how we order our lives and live out our Christian lives, that creates unity in our approach to the Christian life and to all spheres of life. When we practice as a church, gathering together in large groups to sit under Scripture and to worship together and to join our hearts together like we are this morning, that promotes unity. When we gather in small groups to more carefully expose our hearts to each other and to dig into the details of how we think and live, if there is any misunderstanding or any error that comes out in those life groups, it becomes apparent and then we can offer correction or we can instruct in order to increase unity. Even when we very rarely have to begin a process of church discipline to either correct or remove a member who deliberately remains apart from orthodox Christian belief or practice, it is for the purpose of unity, ideally to restore that brother or sister to orthodoxy, or in the worst case, release them to their own choice and preserve the unity of the remaining membership. I say all of this so that you can see that in all the things that we generally practice, unity is what we do. It's part of why we do everything that we do as a church, is to maintain unity and to promote and cultivate unity. So unity is not an option, and disunity is disobedience, but but how is unity going to have the best chance of happening in a church? It's fine to say we all need to be unified, and we have these things in place that we practice together for unity, but something has to happen in us, and Paul gives a second imperative. Do nothing or that nothing is done in selfishness of conceit, humbly regarding one another as more important than yourself, is implied. So here's another command. Don't be selfish. Regard other people more important than yourself. You want to give unity a chance? It will only happen when we are all humble and we all count other people more important than us. And I'll just throw out the old formula that helps us remember what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. In other words, humility isn't thinking constantly about what a poor excuse for a human being you are. Humility is not thinking about yourself first at all, but it's thinking of others first, before you think of yourself. And Paul says there is a way that humility will show itself with his third imperative. How How does humility show up? How do you... Know that this happens, what I call otherness. Not looking out for your own things, but also for those of others. Be other-focused. Don't just take care of your own stuff, take care of the stuff of others. And by stuff, it means everything. Don't, don't just take care of your well-being, take care of the well-being of others first. Don't just look out for your own emotions, be considerate of the emotions of others First, don't just look out for your own, own, own joy. Be on the lookout for how you bring joy and how you care for and steward the joy of others. Don't just worry, putting it the other way, about your own fears. Think about the fears and the stresses and the concerns that others have. Don't just think about what advantages you. Think about what advantages others. Don't just think about your rights, but think about the rights of others. Don't just think about your comfort, but think about the comfort of others first. And so this chain of logic leads us, how we stand firm, how this unity is going to take place. It's in humility, and humility expresses itself in always regarding other people more important than ourselves. I'm not worried if I'm comfortable, I'm worried if you're comfortable. I'm not worried about my rights, I'm worried about your rights. I'm not as concerned about my joy as I am concerned about your joy. I'm not as concerned about what I'm facing as I'm concerned about what you're facing today. You want to be a church that can stand firm together against all the threats of our opposition? You need unity. You want unity? Then lean into humility. What kind of humility is Paul talking about? Being 100% focused on regarding others ahead of yourself. And now Paul sets up a transition from this passionate and very practical poem about joy and unity and humility by pointing these Philippians to where this careful regarding of each other is going to come from. You know, Paul's poem is okay, but the Christ hymn is way better. (laughs) And Paul knows that. Paul knows that this Philippian church, that that no Christian, no disciple, is going to be able to do this on our own. So he transitions with verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I like the ESV translation here because I think it accurately conveys that there's more than just an ethical command. Have this mind among yourselves. If if you just take the ethical command, then it sounds like it's completely up to us to accomplish the command, either by the force of our will or by the habits or training or practice. Like, like we're going to be able to do this on our own. But the ESV translation is nice because it reveals that we are actually given this mind of unity, this regard for one another, because it is the mind of Christ that is ours in Christ Jesus, that there's a supernatural way in which the church and in which Paul expects the Philippians to be able to accomplish that. And that's why the Christ hymn makes so much sense right at this point, because Paul's going to exalt Christ, who we have as believers, and who makes this kind of other-focused humility and unity possible, like nothing else could possibly do. And so just before I put the hymn up on the screen, and as we sort of close out the last half of this today... I want to unpack this hymn just a little bit, but, but hopefully mainly make it a meditation as we're in the process of communion. And so I'm just going to pause, and, and I'm going to have my helpers come, and they're going, to, they're going to offer communion to you now. And what I want you to do, because we always take communion together, is I just want you to hold the elements. Yeah, come on up, helpers. <laughs> we're, we're going to get the elements sorted out here. And as you receive the elements, just hold them in your hand. And after you have the elements, then I'm going to expand on this Christ hymn. And I just, I just feel like today that as we read the Christ hymn, in the, in the format that it's given, that it'll just be a special time to meditate. Meditate. So as the elements are being handed out, I'll just remind everybody that this communion is something that Jesus Christ commanded us to do, and is for those that have faith in him and that count him as their Savior. He said to his disciples, those that followed him, in Luke 2214 to 20, he says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So when we come to communion, this is the Savior, this is the Jesus that we now meditate on. This is the the Jesus that this hymn is written to and about. And so I'll just pause as the elements are passed, and then we'll continue on with the message. Thank you. So just as we're holding the elements and as we're meditating on Christ now as we enter into communion, we'll just sort of look at this Christ hymn as Paul has made it the punctuation of his command for unity and for humility. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who in the form of God existing, not at advantage considered, his being equal with God. But nothing he made himself, the form of a servant adopting, in likeness of men becoming. And in appearance of being found as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, exalted him God, and granted him the name that's above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, Every name may bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to God the Father's glory. Now this hymn, as you can see, is written in several stanzas. And scholars have debated how it how it breaks up, because Paul in the form of the text, we receive it, just wrote it as prose, Um, but it is obviously a hymn, it is obviously originally in stanzas, either six stanzas of three, or three stanzas of four, one or the other. Paul gives Jesus now as an encouragement to the Philippians because he's more than just an ethical example of humility and otherness. Jesus is the source of our unity and the empowerment of our humility, not because we imitate him, but because we share this victory in him. The first stanza is Jesus' choice stated negatively. It's what Jesus doesn't do. Who in the form of God existing, not an advantage considered his being equal with God. Now the form of God there that... Paul uses the word is morphe, not schema. Schema is like a drawing. It's like an image. It's like a picture of something. Morphe is the form of something, the being of something. And so Paul says that the very being of Jesus as God existing is not something that he considered an advantage to be grasped, not something that it was selfish for him to hold on to. It would be translated... His being equal with God is, is not something that Jesus considered selfishly, thinking of himself, I'm, I'm just going to stay in my equality here in heaven, in my full deity. And Paul clarifies, his being equal with God is the form that Jesus had. If there's any question there, people, well, what does it mean that he was in the form of God existing? Maybe it just means he's in the image or the appearance, or, or he could have had it. But Paul says, No, I'm talking about equality with God. Jesus is equal with God. And then the hymn goes on to state Jesus' choice positively, what he does do. Nothing he made of himself in the servant form of a servant. He adopted in likeness of men becoming. There's what Jesus didn't do. He didn't selfishly grab onto his equality with God, but he actively, positively became nothing and took on a form. Morphe again. So instead of the Morphe of God now, he's the Morphe of a slave, Dulos. He is in the form of God, and he is also in the form of a slave. He is both Morphe of God and Morphe of Dulos. And to be clear, Paul's talking about in the likeness of men becoming. Not an angel, not an animal, but a human being. Christ came to become us, like us. And the result of his choice is next. And in appearance being found as a man. And now here, Paul shifts and says schema, in appearance. He's fully man. He's already said that he's the Morphe of a servant, of man, but he's the schema of man as well because I think Paul may be hinting here that Jesus isn't exactly like every other man. He's in the form of a man, but when you talk about Jesus as a man, he is just the appearance of us because if you scratch beneath the surface, Jesus didn't sin. Jesus was perfect. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. And so in that sense, he was the schema of man as he was the morphe of man. What was the result of his choice? He humbled himself. He was brought low and abased, and he became obedient even unto death. The result of Jesus' choice was that he was obedient to the Father to die, even death on a cross. It's the, the pivot or the fulcrum point of humility. It's the pivot. It's the fulcrum point of this poem, of this hymn. It is the pivot. It is the fulcrum point of history and redemption and glory. And then the hymn takes a whole new turn. After the cross. Therefore, exalted him, God. God is the subject now. And what is God doing? He's exalting Jesus. And granted him the name. God rewards Jesus' obedience that only he could do. We could not do it. God could never reward us for our righteous works. Our righteous works do not merit any reward. But Jesus actually is granted. He's rewarded for his obedience because his obedience was perfect. His obedience to humble himself and his obedience here on earth was perfect. And so that Jesus receives the reward. He receives the inheritance that we cannot be given, that we cannot have, take on our own, that we cannot inherit by our own merit. He merits what we could not. And what does he merit? He merits a name that's above every name. In other words, we get the grace of God counting the righteousness of Jesus as ours. God exalts Jesus and grants him a name above every name. It is the most righteous name, the most powerful name, the name of our Savior Jesus. We couldn't do it, but Jesus has accomplished it. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee may bow of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. This is Jesus receiving worship. Again, if there's any doubt here that somehow maybe Jesus isn't God, well, then not every knee would bow at the name of Jesus if he wasn't God. It would be heresy, it would be sacrilege, it would be idolatry to worship anything other than God. And yet here, God exalts Jesus, gives him the name, makes him worthy of all worship. Every knee, willing or unwilling, concedes to Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth, talking about angels, talking about spirits, talking about creatures, talking about demons, everything and everything is going to bend the knee to Jesus one way or the other and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to God the Father's glory. How does the Father get glory out of this? Because this is His Son that every knee bows to and every tongue confesses is the Savior. You see, Jesus is the source of our unity. He's the empowerment of our humility. Not only just because we imitate Him, but because we share this victory with Him. That if Jesus is provided by Paul merely for ethical imitation, then it doesn't make sense for Paul to include the exaltation verses which would not be possible for the Philippian church. We can't be exalted like Jesus is exalted unless we participate in here. But if the essence of the possibility of our humility and unity is that it is from Christ and our participation with Christ in what he has done, then the exaltation of Christ's victory is the evidence and encouragement that our victory is possible and already accomplished as well. If we share in his suffering and humility, we will share in his victory. If we suffer with him, we are glorified with him, Romans eight seventeen says, and if we are participants in his humility, it will result in our glory. As in almost everything else he writes, Paul is making a hard connection here, a distinct link between ourselves and Christ. We are joined with him, and our existence is getting pulled along with Christ, and that's what he wants his Philippian friends to know. You need to stand firm together, you need to face the opposition, you need to face the persecution and the suffering, you want unity, you're going to have humility. You're going to have other-mindedness, and that humility and that other-mindedness is yours in Christ. Why? Because Christ was other-minded. He thought of us when he was in heaven, and he humbled himself. He put our joy ahead of his suffering. He put our redemption ahead of his grasping his equality with God. And we have that in Christ. Paul's hope for his Philippians friends is that they will completely embrace and receive their supernatural, spirit-given participation in the person of Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection victory. That's the power of Christian unity. That's what makes supernatural Christian humility possible. This glorious reality that is captured in the Christ hymn, that he's humbled himself to our form and stature, that, that he shared of himself, that he looked out for our interests, that he's allowed us to participate in him, not just with him, but participate in him as he took on our flesh, as he granted us our spirit, so that we really supernaturally have absolute union and unity with Jesus and the Father, and we will be caught up in his glory and victory. That's why Jesus gave us even more than joining us in his likeness. (laughs) That's why he gave us this ordinance, this rite of communion to remind us. As you take the cup that represents his blood, as you take the bread that represents his body, Jesus is making it crystal clear, you participate in me. If I die, you'll die. But if I'm raised to glory you'll be glorified. You have nothing to fear. That's what Paul wants his friends to know. You don't have to bicker. You don't have to fight. You don't have to be fearful. You can stand firm. You can have unity. You can face it all because you are participants with Jesus in his humility and his exaltation. Let's pray for the elements of communion. Father God, We thank you for this text. We thank you for Paul's passion for his friends in Philippi. Thank you for his passion for all believers in all time. Thank you that your Holy Spirit preserved this for us. Father, I thank you that you don't leave us any wiggle room. You show us coming and going, as it were, that we are participants with Christ if we trust in his name, that his name has all authority, that his person is all-encompassing, that he is exalted to the highest place, that he came and joined us in our very form, even though he had the form of God, he became the morphe of man, the morphe of doulos, a slave, to participate with us in our humanity. And then he said, here, take my flesh, take my blood, (laughs) eat of it. Be doubly sure that you are participating with me. I am in you and you are in me as I am in the Father, and we are one. This is the mystery of communion. And Father, that's what we celebrate, that's what we rejoice in today, the communion, the unity that we have in your Son, and therefore the communion and the unity that we have with each other. Father, help us to follow this imperative, to have this mind which is ours in Christ, humility and other focusedness, to just lay our lives down for others the way that Christ laid his down for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.